Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview has been tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Sandra Mosley. Now, Sandra was a member of the Metropolitan Police and is now running her own business. But we'll come to that later on. Good morning, Sandra. Thank you so much for seeing me on this Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Sandra, where did it all begin for you? Right. So um, if I say my earliest memories, probably when I was about 14, 15, and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do. And um, so I looked at three areas, really, nursing, social worker, police officer. And I just looked at the pros and cons of each. And I thought, actually, policing probably suit me better because it's not so narrow in the sense that nursing it's one thing and um, social worker might have been too much because again you get so involved and actually police you're a bit of everything so I thought actually that's really good Um, that would probably suit me and so from that age I just decided that that's what I I was going to do and um and applied as soon as I could, really. Um, and I had an older brother who was also a policeman, uh, but he was in the MOD at that point. And then he later transferred to the Met um, as well. So, and I just really liked what I saw, and and I thought it'd be really interesting. That's, that's really cool. But you come from a an Italian Catholic background, I assume, and yeah. large family. How did your parents take the fact that you were going to join? the Metropolitan Police? Um, They were really proud, actually, uh, because my mum and my father had come over from Italy. Well, my father actually stayed behind, from what I understand, to work and went to Germany, did piecework and stuff like that in the 60s. And my mother came over because she had a brother who lived here in northwest London and so I was later born here so it wasn't with me I'm one of seven and I'm the seventh child um so me and me and my sister were born here but my mother came over with five kids and um out in Italy so they came from originally this sort of southern part and unlike here the south and the north are very different in the sense that the north is where the money is really and the south is the poorer part so for a better life and for work um they had decided to migrate over here and in those days you could do that as long as you you were sponsored right um and so she was really pleased because the police there in the south um i think she always found were a little bit you know um towards the carabinieri it was very authoritative and um and so to have sort of children joined the police in England that had given her the opportunities to sort of better her life. I think she was really proud and really pleased and really, really supportive, yeah. Did you grow up in a a fully enclosed 
Italian lifestyle? Was your whole community around Italian life within London? Yes, uh, it was. Although my parents, when they came over, we lived, like I said, in northwest London, so in Mill Hill. And actually a lot of the Italian community that came from the south lived in more like, um, I remember visiting family. We went to Holloway, you know, Is Islington, some Palmer's Green, Bounds Green, you know, where the sort of communities were. But because my mum was sponsored by by her brother, we ended up in Mill Hill, which was fine. But our, I suppose our church was the St. Peter's Church in Clerkenwell, which oh, is right. the big Italian church. So... Oh, well, so you travel into the city to go to church on a Sunday? Yeah, so we would go for weddings, for all the Italian community sort of like events, we'd go there. But we had our own actual parish as well, because my mum was really keen on going to mass, you know, not just at weekends, but whenever, really. Um, and so we all used to, I, I suppose, I don't, I don't like to say dragged, but <laughs> we were all kind of made to go to church regardless, um, you know, as we were growing up. So, um, but yeah, we did, we, we did have a strong Italian community. You know, my, my parents couldn't speak English when they came here. So I suppose later in life, I realised that actually I learned English probably from my brothers and sisters and from school. Uh, because it was a case of we we were reading the sort of letters and the post and, you know, very much like it is probably now or over the last 10 years where there's been a lot of Eastern Europeans that have come in. I actually see a lot of what probably my parents went through when I hear stories about them and the fact that they um had to take up work that was kind of menial really because of the language barriers yeah you know that we had and, and my my grandmother came over here um from ireland and you know we are we are all whatever anybody wants to say there are very few people in this country that haven't come from a melting pot that you know we we are all effectively immigrants you just find it quite sad that we we're so anti so many people yeah, yeah, I know. I can understand all sides of it. I mean, you know, who knows what would have happened if I hadn't, I mean, if I hadn't been born here, I suppose. My, um, actually, in, interestingly, my mum always said that she had family that went to Philadelphia and it was a case of whether to come to the UK or go to Philadelphia. So I often think, what would my life have been if I'd gone to the States? Well, I've, <laughs> I've seen The Godfather and, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I've got a really good friend who was on the FBI and he was an undercover and he brought down a, an Italian, he's Italian, he brought down an Italian crime family in, in Philadelphia. So who knows? I know. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you've got to a point in your schooling where – You've got to focus on the on the police. Did you have to do anything different, or did you just go through your normal schooling and make your application? Um, having, um, I suppose, if I could say foreign parents, I'm not sure if that's the right term, but you know, parents that didn't really understand the sort of education system, didn't um, really support. We were very, I was very reliant, being the baby of the family, I suppose, me and my sister that were born here, on the older on the older sort of family members, you know, siblings. And um, 
they were the ones that would kind of support the younger members, I suppose, to kind of do things at school. Because I didn't have, I didn't feel like, although my mum tried to support me, she wouldn't really understand what the homework was or mm. what I was actually meant to. I could have actually have have just said that I was doing my work, but I could have easily have not have done my work yeah. because she couldn't read or write English. So um, I suppose from that perspective, I um, worked harder because I suppose for me, it was all about myself motivation and from other sort of siblings telling me to do well and encouraging me so I was lucky in that way having a big family have has its pros and cons uh I'm not gonna lie well no because I mean I went on a lot of people have really large families later on because they feel like oh they've come from a big family I went the other way because I just thought oh I don't really want to have a large family because I saw and understood the sort of struggles oh, yeah. that my parents had and I suppose and throughout the other siblings I mean there are 16 years actually difference between me and the eldest so it's like another generation so I felt like my older two sisters they were like the sort of mother head you know and guiding every, everyone else through which is not ideal you know you don't want your kids to take on responsibilities that you should as a parent but you know 40 years ago plus I suppose that's just the way it was and we made it work yeah well I've got um my dad's youngest brother my dad's one of seven and my dad's youngest brother is closer in age to me than he is to my dad and uh, I've got a niece who's four years younger than me uh, yeah so it's just you know that's how it goes and I've got First generation. Oh, I've got second cousins in Boston who are the same ages of, as me. So, yeah. and my dad's eighty this year. So, in fact, I've got cousins that are a lot. Uh, second cousins are a lot younger. So, so I've got that commonality with them that they have. They've got no contact or no commonality with my dad. It's it's just strange how big big Catholic families work. Yeah. So I suppose looking back, reflecting. I never went to university. I didn't do A-levels. I uh, All those things came, came later in life. You know, I wasn't the same learner as I was at sort of 15, 16, uh, the, as I am now. Yeah. Or as I was, as I grew when I joined the police and did courses and grew as a person. So it was very different to going to school and... I suppose, what I was sort of learning and trying to achieve, because the aim, I suppose, at that point was to do your mandatory trait like schooling, but then get a job. You know, that's what the ethos was really about in my family at that time. Yeah. And um, so I left school. Um, I had like evening jobs anyway uh, while I was trying to study and then I went and worked for a building society in London because I knew that when I applied for for the police it would look good it would look favorable that I was in in a position of trying you were told all these things so when you contacted recruitment in those days you know or whoever it was a phone call 
um, they would say, go and do some voluntary work, go and do this, go and do that. So I had an agenda. I wanted to join and I thought, right, what's going to get me to the best place? Um, so I did that and I didn't even back in those days pass my maths. And I went to the Building Society in London, had an interview and I had to sit a maths test. But but sort of luckily I passed and I started my career in the Bilne Society for two years until I joined the police. In those days, it took about a year and a half for me to actually get a date. Right. So I applied at like 18 and um, or 18 and a half. I think it was then you had to apply. And then I joined when I was 20 and a, and a half and I was absolutely delighted but I felt like I'd always progressed you know because obviously like I say I had to do um other tests to be able to get into the job that I wanted to do and I managed to do it and I didn't really have support from my parents in the sense of sitting down and going through tests with me and saying right not like it is now you know like mine I'm I I have a real strong emphasis now with my kids growing up, education has been the primary focus of what they do yeah. to the point where they say, mum, you're such a pushy mum. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can't, you can only take your kids so far, you can guide them so far and they'll go and do their own thing. When, you, when you've done your form and you've joined the police, you've gone to Hendon. What was that like? You know, this is 1991. So, yes. so it's you know we've got raves going on across the country. There's all all manner of things taking place. Politics are, was being turned on its head. Margaret Thatcher was just stepping away from government. John Major was just going in. What was that like joining the Metropolitan Police? Well, I I often say I mean I was probably very naive because I grew up in like I say an Italian family. I was very mollycoddled. I was the baby. I had two older brothers. I had lots of sisters and it was just like, you know, I don't know. I didn't expect anything. I was like oblivious to the whole thing. And yes, I worked in London and I'd been traveling on the train for two years. I worked in Regent Street, which is just off the back of Vine Street, um, where there was a police station. And I mentioned that because the building society was held up quite a few times. Oh, was it? And on one occasion, I was in the building society on the cash desk when the robber, I suppose, come came in. So I had a bit of experience of the flying squad coming in and taking a statement. And at that age, at kind of 19, 20, it was, well, I think I was, I don't know, 18 and a half, 19. It was quite a big thing, you know. Um, but going back to Hendon, I suppose I didn't know what to expect. I knew it would be structured, disciplined in my, from what I'd, I'd heard, but I was just really excited and like nervous at, at the same time. And, um, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And because the big classes at Hendon as well, or big intakes at Hendon as well, certainly were, they were in those days. Where did you go to after you've you've done your initial training? Where did you get posted to? I, get, I, I went to Wembley. Oh, did you? So, yeah, I went to Wembley um, as it was then. It was a big... So I lived in, in the section house. I went from uh, training and I was posted to Wembley QD and I lived in the section house, which was behind the police station. So literally I could 
do my shifts, roll out of the section into the station. It was like brilliant. I mean, it's just such a shame that they don't have that now oh, because no. it was like, I suppose, I don't know really about uni, but I mean, I did go to university later on to do my teaching qualification, but like living in uni, I suppose this was the nearest thing for me um or the closest thing to it and um yeah I just I just love I I think I was just so lucky as well because I had a brilliant team uh that I joined um yes there were things like you're new you have to prove yourself you can't sit on the table the same table at breakfast you know you've probably heard all these stories until you've proved yourself and things like that were a little bit strange but I suppose I just sort of went with the flow of it you know if that was how it was then in those days that's how it was you know but do you think I mean I I, I, look, I don't like I don't like bullying and I don't you know I, I really don't like it I think it's it's quite disgusting but there's a difference between bullying and, and acceptance and character building you know we used to be given the teapot from the, the last probationer and, the, and they present it to you so that you had to make the tea until the new probationer came in now that's that's frowned upon these days, but that's character building, and that's you're the sprog, and it's about being part of that team and the acceptance into that team. But I also get the other side where people feel excluded. But yeah, what- I mean, we've got to put it in context of the time of the era that we we were in, and what was going on. I suppose in sort of history in its wider sense, and for me. I did all I I did the meals on nights. We used to have meals at two in the morning. We'd go down to my mum's house and she would uh, prepare trays of like uh, lasagna. And um, fantastic. And we, would pick it up with, <laughs> and we would pick it up with the police van at two in the morning. So my mum would know beforehand. And it was just and then we'd load it all up and. Um, we worked in Wembley and they had a panificio, which was like a bread making place by the sort of Wembley Stadium, the like warehouse where they make bread. And then we'd get like 10 sticks of fresh bread. Brilliant. And we'd have a meal on nights. And so every six weeks or every couple of months, we put the order in and then my mum would do cannelloni or do something else or we would like cook at night. Um, so, but they were like the whole team, like I say, they would send my mum flowers, you know, and a thank you card. And she loved it because that was being Italian. That is the thing she, you know, it's the the whole culture is around feeding people and (laughs) it makes her happy, (laughs) you know, so. But it's community, isn't it? You know, the, the things you're discussing here. Yeah, okay. Look, the, the police isn't perfect, and we know that, and we've seen all the all the recent news around it. But it's not as imperfect as some people make out, and that community of policing, if they're not really careful, they're going to lose that completely. They're going to lose that camaraderie, and what you're talking about is pure ca- camaraderie. Definitely having that meal where you all sit together and the. Um... And just we just used to do traditional things like off nights when you finish your seven days on your eighth like morning, you'd all go to the section house and you'd all be drinking in the in the morning. <laughs> it's a common thing. You know, that was the last sort of day you finished 
And rather than go to a pub, I suppose we'd just be sitting there doing whatever we do, you know. And um, and it's a kind, a kind of debrief, you know. And even after late shifts, we used to go to the local pub and, and all that. And I found even when I went back out as a DS, like quite a few years ago now, but you know, that had gone because people were not, were trying to get home. And, you know, it was just like people had moved out of London. Mm. Like you all had to live in London. When I joined, you had to be in London. You couldn't really live too far, far out. It wasn't really the thing to live on your ground. You did it, um, work on your ground. I mean, yeah. that wasn't really part of it. It was better if you didn't work on your on your ground. And then they changed all that and people were allowed to live on the ground. Everything changes, you know, every few years or every 10 years, it seems to evolve the rules. Um, and and I suppose there was just a whole big shift in really that people were not um they'd lost that kind of, you know, unit of your team as such. It's a shame. And there's pros and cons, isn't there, to to all of that. But f- for me, coming from a family, I really felt, although there were certain things that, you know, when you're introduced into the team, you have to do certain things, like I had to sit on a different table, I had to do this, do that. Um, I didn't see it as bullying I because it was never done with any malice. You know, it was always done really nicely. Even, I mean, I don't know whether I can say this, but I used to be called WAP, you know, and Italian and spaghetti and stuff like that. But it was never done being horrible. I mean, you wouldn't obviously do that now. Not, No, you wouldn't. You know, and you couldn't say any, and I totally agree with that. But when I think back, I think, do you know what? I used to, I used to quite like it because well, I felt like it. I, I was accepted for my background as yeah. well. We had every Welshman was called Taff. Yeah. You know, we had. Oh, it was just absolutely. You know, every everyone from um, Newcastle was called Geordie. That's that's how it was, and every Irishman was called Paddy. It was it was yeah. just how or spud, that's just how it was. I mean, we had a guy um, in in our office, and his name was um, Martinez, and he got called Spicky. Okay, yeah, and because we had somebody join us who wasn't into it, you know, didn't didn't agree with, it, which is fine. And they said, "Well, what's your name?" He said, "Well, it's Spicky." That's what I've been called since I joined. You know, since I joined the job, that's my name, yeah. and. Um, <laughs> I can see now why nicknames and stuff like that shouldn't be allowed. And I and I totally agree. And actually, you wouldn't say any of those things now. And that's right. Um, but in those days, it was a very different place yes. and a different era and a different um, ethos. But I can honestly say none of it was done from my perspective with any malice or any or I wasn't ostracized because of it um you know and I took it as a term of endearment believe it or not at that time you're part of the team yeah I I absolutely I mean it's funny because I I, like I say I do get it because you could say something that would really offend somebody and and yeah and I think as you get promoted you become more in tune to that as well because you actually you start to understand that yeah you are there is a team ethos, but when you get to, you know, sergeant, inspector, so on, 
you can see you can start to look back in and see where people are being affected by some of the some of the nicknames or some of the behaviours. And, and they're more. I think the police are more um, embracing now than they've ever been around diversity and and what have you, which is brilliant because we do the police do represent a diverse background. You know, you do need to have Italians, you do need to have Turkish people, you do need to have Pakistani, Indian, and so on and so forth. Because actually, that's how society is built. And we go back to the immigration migration convers- yeah. conversation. It needs to be representative. And to be honest with you, I, I, because I was posted at Wembley, obviously we got football. I mean, I'm not a big fan of football, believe it or not. Although my son plays football, I, I only watch the kind of main games when it's Italy and England or you yeah. know, the, main, the main events. But being in Wembley, I used to do a lot to do with the charge centre. So when Italia was playing Italy, I used to be the interpreter for the bag carrier. So And then I'd go into custody and I could read from the sheets or I could explain uh, I'm not um, qualified as as an interpreter or as a translator, but I can use my conversational language skills to help out. So every football I used to end up having to go to the match and do these kind of roles. And I quite liked it in some ways because I felt like I felt valued Mm. for what I bought. Whereas growing up at first, uh, when like speaking Italian, I never really wanted to speak it. I never really wanted to show people that I could speak Italian. I don't know why. I just didn't. And um, but I suppose when I joined the police and started using my skills and stuff like that, then it was a real acceptance. But I would go from, you, you know, I'd go home to my parents and I would speak to my mum in, in like Italian. So I would just change from one language to another. And like people were like, oh, that's really like, it's really bizarre. Like they couldn't get their head around that. And I think to a certain degree, I think some of my thinking is done in my own language as well, Italian. Yeah. Because I translate things in English and I say things that like people have picked up on on it. So my husband, so I would say, close, close the light. And my husband would say, you don't close the light, you switch the light (laughs) off. But in the translation, how we would say it is, um, and that would be close, close the light. So it didn't completely translate. That's brilliant. You know? (laughs) That's brilliant. I I do, I find it fascinating. We, I interviewed a guy, um, early on called Alan Evershed, who was the chief superintendent, and he carried the radio at the 1966 World Cup final. I mean, absolutely fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. So what year did you leave Wembley? Oh, um, 99, I think it was, oh, 1999. So you were there for Euro 96 when, yeah. they, when they had all the, you know, the international uh, European championships there. Yeah, so I was utilised during, we we had the charging centre at Wembley, we had loads, like we had the car pound bit, you know, there were loads of different, it was all, it was all done at Wembley, yeah. So I spent quite a lot of time, so I did sort of uniform for, you know, quite a few years, but in that time, in that time period, we, we had a lot of squads, so actually, although I was a uniform officer, I was taken off after a few years and I 
and I joined various squads. So I joined the burglary squad and, you know, we had like burglary squad, drug squad, robbery squad. And I did a bit of, um, so I joined the burglary squad and, and the DS in charge of the burglary squad, um, no, the robbery squad, he was an ex-flying flying squad officer and um, he was a surveillance trainer and camera competency and stuff like that. And so he did our training back then. We didn't have like a dedicated course as such right. for, um, it was very different. We used to run our own informants. You know, now it's cheers. It's all done part of a team. It's all properly managed, I suppose. But back then, you would tr- you would try and cultivate your own informants. It's brilliant. And you would run- <laughs> it was brilliant. And you would run your own informants. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so he did our training. So I did some sort of basic street surveillance training. Um, I. And and back then, to, to get in the CID, it was about how many informants have you got? Mm. How many, you know, slips have you done? How many, it was all like how many intelligence reports and stuff like that. So it was very much a case of you being really, really proactive in what you're doing yeah. around that to join the CID, to show the detective in, in like chief, whatever, that you were really keen, you know. Um, so I did like those courses and the camera competency and a bit of surveillance. And then they had, um, decoy work back and then it was all undercover decoy work. And I, uh, I mean, I had very dark hair. Uh, I suppose you could say I've got olive skin. Um, and working in Wembley, there were a lot of robberies on, um, Asian women. And so I dressed up in a sari and um you know Punjabi suit and I would have they'd have makeup artists in and I would be a decoy so I'd be an undercover officer as a Indian lady you know an Asian woman and um so yeah that was quite scary I bet it was (laughs) I bet it was but good yeah But, but good it was good um experience you know and th- I mean, it's it's interesting because I've worked on the other side, on the peripheral of a, of a decoy, and to watch somebody walking down the street hoping that they're going to get robbed. I mean, that's what that's what we're you know we're looking for somebody not to get robbed, but you know to be approached so we can grab all the suspects. That must be quite unnerving whilst you're walking oh, down there. It was to the point where I had to take out my radio in the end. I had an earpiece and I had the bag with the camera and everything you know, and I'm walking down a stairwell in Wembley where it's actually got a blind spot as well. And I knew that, but because I kept hearing them saying, yeah, male, male approaching from behind, I couldn't, I, I, I was just like, I'd flinch. So in the end, I said, I got to take out my piece. I can't have it in. So I'm just like trusting that you're going to be there. Wow. <laughs> When wow. it takes off, and it and it was fine. It was good. The team, you know, you had, you still had even back then in the nineties, early night. You had a strong team and mm. and strong. You know, they were like your family. You spent so much time with them that they were your family. I still say that, you know. And um, yeah, it was just built on trust, and that you trusted the people that you worked with. Yeah. And it was fine. It worked out fine. So yeah. So I did. I, I I did all that, and then 
during the CID. No, actually, during that time, so that period when I was on at Wembley, I <clears throat> then the chief or the CID chief said, right, there's an attachment, secondments come up to the murder teams. I want you to go. I think it would be really good for you and all that. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not even like fully qualified. And I've been offered this this role. But it, it was good for me because I thought, well, they really think I'm good yeah. for them to send me there. So, yeah. So back then it was called Two Area AMIP, which is like the murder teams, as they're known now, for North Area, North West London. But it was kind of pan London, really. Um, where was the office base? Where was the Sorry? where was the office base at that time? So it was based at Hendon, and so there was one at Hendon and one at Albany Street, which is Camden, Kentish Town. So we had two actually bases, one in London and one in Northwest London. Yeah, so so I worked there. I gained really good experience. I got commendation from there uh, because I right so. I'd gone there and obviously worked on the team and just did really to to sort of start with, you've got to learn the role and stuff. So I did a lot of the intelligence stuff. So phone lines, you know, all that sort of thing, subscriber checks. And then I was just part of the inquiry. So actions, you, you know, whatever comes out. But prior to that, at Wembley, like I said, I did some of my, um, I did camera work and I worked for the proactive intel team. Right. So I'd done a lot of like logs. I'd been in OPs. I'd been like decoy and all that. So when I was on the murder team, a murder happened. And basically I was off that day, I think, but you all had pages back then. We didn't have mobile. That's right. And um, so I phoned in, the pager went, I phoned in and they told me of, of this murder. And the MO was... Um, was really, really um, distinctive in the sense of how this murder suspect did things within this house. And basically, because I'd been on the proactive unit and it was on my ground, it was on the sort of Wembley ground, Collindale, Hyde, Hyde um, the Hyde, you know, in Collindale, um, they told me the MO and I just thought, do you know what? I know someone who actually does that. Because back in those days, you knew all your... Yeah, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And I'd worked in the Intel and you knew it. Now now you don't because it's all very much changed. The areas are bigger, you know, but you knew the people within your patch sort of, sort of thing back then. And so anyway, so I phoned in and I said, look, I don't know, this is a long shot, but obviously I've worked on the proactive unit, blah, blah, blah. And um, this person that I've been looking at previously, he is a burglar, but he does certain things and he's um, and I put his name forward anyway. They took it into they did all their inquiries, put it into into in, into the system and all that. And ultimately, they found obviously DNA, and it matched that person. Wow! And from that, I got a commendation from for sort of like identifying and putting up the person, putting them forward. So that was my like claim to fame. That's brilliant. <laughs> do you do you remember the name of the suspect? I do, but I don't know whether I'm allowed to say because he's still in prison. You can say if he's locked up and it's in the public domain. You can say. 
Oh right, okay, but he. Um, I think they if changed his name. If you'd rather not, that's not. I'm not offended. <coughs> um, but so he still he still locks up for that crime. Yeah. Can I ask what his mo was though? Yeah, he was a climber, so he climbed through a small window, and um, once he's in the property, he remembering back because this is a long time ago. But he would turn the picture frames round. So if you had pictures in the bedroom or anything like that, he turned the picture frames round, and he would um, cut wires or things like that. And it was really, really distinctive in that sense. And there was a bit of a build-up picture in the sense that he'd been he'd been caught or someone had been put forward very similar to him who a victim woke up and this person was sat at the end of a bed, you know, and mm. then he obviously made off. Um, he It was just a little bit strange. And just because of the location, proximity of where this person was, what their previous was, I suppose I just thought, well, it's a long shot, but let's put it forward, you know. But that's forward thinking. <laughs> Well, that's what it's about, isn't it? I suppose if you if you've got that gut feeling, you've just got to go with it. Sometimes, mm. yeah, even absolutely. if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, you know. But that's uh, that's brilliant. Did you did you enjoy the? I mean, I I loved working on the murder squads, but did you enjoy that that time? Yeah, I did. Yeah, well, I mean, it was tiring, but it was good. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and then and then after, so yeah, it was nice. It was a, a total different, but it was such good experience because you learn everything you learn in fine grain detail. You know of what to do, even interviews and just the whole thing, house to house. I I did, I did a lot of house to house inquiries, um, house to house. You know, just subscribers, like, like I say, intelligence checks. You just learn everything in a, in in more detail than you would if you're working at a local station. Oh, absolutely, but it's interesting because subscriber checks. We're talking about a time where mobile phones were just in their ascendance, and, yeah. and if we went to any of the uh, main companies, Vodafone, O2, whatever they were called before, three, it was so easy at that time to get subscriber checks, and then you have an authorities bureau. And it just became so cumbersome. To, and I get it because of data protection, now GDPR. And, but a lot of crimes were solved from subscriber checks and, and putting yeah, that an, yeah. analytical product together. And even if they were home phones, you know, back in the yeah. day, I, I can't remember the details, but we still had people that would do those charts, you know, with all the phones. And, and a kappa. And people, et cetera. So, yeah. It, yeah, it was, um, I, you know, I, it was I too, really good yeah, experience. Yeah, absolutely. I2 and Anna Kappa charts. I mean, that's, our walls were littered with them. But it, they solved crimes. It actually put people in the, on homes. It put people in the in the right place. Um, and it, it was a brilliant, brilliant – but if you had a, um, an investigation that was so big, the charts were huge and you'd have to break them down even further. But it, it was, it's a fascinating science. And I think what we're discussing – People, the public at large, don't understand this. They think that it goes into a machine. They don't understand how much work goes into investigating any crime. Used to be, but any crime. But now, the, the like the more serious end of the market, there's so much gets thrown into it. 
and it's not just murders. I mean, I we worked on a serial rapist as well that yeah. had raped multiple women, and that was taken as well as part of the murder team's yeah. job, one of the jobs. And sometimes you'd be on your team, but you would be lent out to other teams to do inquiries. Yeah. So you still have your own stuff. Plus, you know, you'd be helping out on maybe CCTV or house to house. Or back then, I suppose they didn't really have CCTV other than in shops, you know, those old machines and hard drives and yeah. videotapes and and all that that you would be seizing. Um, so, yeah, but I would say it's the best experience ever to do any of these kind of specialist roles because you learn so much in depth, you know, mm. of what actually you can do. I think the hardest thing is then transferring that knowledge and scaling it down when you're on a sort of local police station or borough. It's, it's scaling every, everything down because you don't have the luxury of having loads of people to do house to house and, you know, inquiries. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, I never thought about it, but you, you're absolutely right because now I think back when I got promoted off of there. I was trying to attack every investigation as if I was still on a major crime. Yeah. You know, you put a file together and it's a a, um, a work of art and you put your stuff and you, there was no pressures about getting that you'd have people remanded in custody for murder, but there was no huge pressures to get them in other than the fact that you had to get your disclosure done by a certain point and so on and so forth. But it was work in progress and, and I found that particularly difficult after going, when I went back onto local policing because I didn't have the, the luxury of the additional support from yeah. people. Oh, just just go out and collect that CCTV. Just do those disclosure bits. You didn't have that. You had a, a beleaguered work, workforce that were trying to deal with everything else. Yeah, with like 30 crimes and you're trying to put a complete action plan that <laughs> is too much. You know, it's not really proportionate to what you're dealing with no. now on Borough no. or on a, on a police station. No, I know. But, but as long as you're aware of that, I suppose, then you can – kind of tailor it i don't know <laughs> so so how long did you serve on the emmet um it was about it was only about 18 months because it started off as an attachment secondment because um because our dci at the time she was really keen and she'd been on the murder teams and all that and so obviously she was happy to send people because she really thought it'd be good experience and um, I suppose she had this thing with with the murder teams that she would send people there to help, you know, and, and work with them. And then I stayed on because of that murder and other things that that happened. I, and I think and I tried to stay on as much as I could as well and not go back mm -hmm. you know, in the hope that I'd probably end up get, getting a job there anyway. Um, but eventually I was pulled back. Um, so yeah. And then I did my detectives, you know, officially the course and everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then I got through that and then I went as a, as a detective to my station, you know, to my new station as oh. it, as it was then you, you had to move as a DC back then if you got promoted as they could, it felt like, like a promotion. Yeah. Then you um, went to a new place. And where did you go to? I, I went to Collindale. So oh, okay. predominantly I always stayed in the sort of Northwest area, London, you know, area. So I went to Collindale 
um, and you felt like you were the main person in charge, you know, as the detective on night duty or detective, everyone looked up to you. Yeah. For what was going to happen, yep. you know, on nights. And you were telling people and you had people that were trainees on your team. But you'd, you know? have, you'd have uniform inspectors that would come to you and say, well, you know, Sandra, what, what do you think? And you'd be thinking... <clears throat> but, but I've only just become a fully qualified detective, so don't ask me what I'm thinking. You know, it, it's but they do. They 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 look at the CID or looked at the CID as a beacon of professionalism around policing. Definitely. And my first week, I remember this actually. Now it's all coming coming back to me now, and this is years ago, uh, twenty years ago at least. Uh, but my first week, we didn't even get to the end of the week. My first um, few days. I hadn't attempted murder and it was just really, it was just really good. I mean, although I was a bit nervous because obviously you're new and all that, it was good because obviously I'd been on the murder teams. I did it, uh, but, but it's different because obviously we were dealing with it locally. So we had that. And also back in the day, if it was a murder where the suspect was known, yeah, then we would keep it on the actual station and we would run it manually. So not on homes, but on a, a sort of carousel. Yeah. So, so we had one of them as well. And we were running it on index cards and going out and taking statements and actions and trying to just run it manually. That's brilliant. You know, on paper and put it in. So, yeah. So I think it all stood me in good stead. So when did you go, when did you decide to go for promotion to to sergeant? Um, I was was fairly older in service and older in age when I did that because, and there's some reasons, because I say this uh, to to like people now, um, and the main reason was that back in my day, if you said to your team you wanted to take the exam or do promotion, they would just laugh at you. They would like get some time in, you know, And so you could never say if you had under five years, at least you you would. I would say, in my opinion, you'd have to have at least 10 years before you could say, I want to go for like promotion. Yeah. Back in the 90s, you know, the early 90s, because that's how how I felt. And so I didn't for quite a long while and I think what happened I'm just trying to think so um there was at Colander for quite a few years and then I'm just trying to see the order of the events now um I think I started to actually study for the exam I'm just trying to think whether it was before my daughter was born or just after and I thought yeah I want to go for like promotion I want to give it a go and so and then when I eventually pass that, because it's a different process to how it is now, I um, I think I was, I had about 15 years in the job, 14 years in the job. So, um, and I'm just trying to think, did I have my daughter? Yeah, I did have my daughter then, yeah. So, so I had my daughter, but she was... Um, like really young, like two or three or right. something. And I thought I need to have it done. I would have hoped that I would have done it all before I'd had my family because that was the idea. But I didn't because I think in, at, at that point in those days, like I say, I don't think, you know, they really would have supported you. 
No, for that you needed to get. I'm I'm the same. I was really late getting promoted and ended up with a chief inspector's pension. Where did you go to as a, as a sergeant? So I went to Ed, Edmonton, which was uh, which is now called North Area, which is Enfield. Yeah, Enfield and Edmonton. It borders Haringey. You know, so a really busy station as as a DS and. Um, yeah, it was just really, really busy with gangs and stabbings and, you know, you just never looked at the clock. Like, you'd look at the clock in the morning and you wouldn't even notice when it was home time. It was that kind kind of busy. So time just went. But, it again, it was really good. And I really, I really like, I, I sort of remember, I think I I was so pleased that I'd, I'd got uh, promoted and I didn't pass first time which um, I was absolutely gutted. And, but eventually I got promoted and um, I think I was just so honoured that I really wanted to sort of embrace the role. I was so thankful, you know, yeah. and, um, and I just really loved what I was doing and I just threw myself in it. And um, yeah. And I think at that point, that was when I was running my team and really sort of like trying to, teach people what to do and you know do what sergeants do I suppose detective sergeants should be doing supporting your staff and all that that's when I kind of realized that I really enjoyed doing that yeah I really enjoyed watching people grow and really you know be good at what they did and I wanted to impart my knowledge and everything I'd been through you know my service because I was quite experienced I wasn't like someone who'd like arrived and I only had a few years I was like you know I'm a 16 year you know detective and blah 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 sort of thing yeah no I agree Um, sound like old sweat as they used to call it (laughs) but 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 that's what that's what counts and I and I I I went for promotion because I got sick to death of being given disclosure on on murders by some, by someone who hadn't got the exams, and I, the only way I was ever going to get the acting was to get the exam, and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. And as soon as I got the exam, I went straight into the skipper and said, "Look, I've got the exam." Yeah. That person hasn't got the exam. Um, I'd like to do the acting. Well, they, it's a fait accompli. They couldn't say no. Yeah, and, and, because you were legally qualified. Yeah, 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 and and that's how that's how it worked. So you've gone through the rest of your service how has that progressed as a sergeant you then taking your inspector's exam no i didn't take it straight away right. um because i had my son and um i think i just found it really really difficult balancing you know working shifts and having now two two children and um obviously you know, it, it was just hard. And my husband's a police officer as well. Right. And I suppose he's always been frontline policing. So um, he's uniform. And so I, I had to decide at that point, right, one of us, something's got to give. Yeah. Because I've never wanted to have latchkey kids. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if people want to do that, that's up to them. But, you know, I have always had childcare and um and help from family and friends at times 
But it's always been really, really hard because I used to ring my child mind at seven o'clock at night and she'd say, you know, you've got to come and pick up your baby, <laughs> you know, your child. <laughs> and she goes, it's seven o'clock, you know, sort of thing. And I just couldn't leave because I was at a station that's busy and stuff like that. And and you're always torn with feeling guilty and feeling like you want to do everything that you possibly can at work. But also you have chosen to have kids as well. But I don't know. It's just hard. And so basically, I just thought, well, this isn't working. What can I do? And so the murder teams, I always wanted to go back to the murder teams. And I thought, I'm not going to, I can't give it the hours because when a job breaks, you've got to be there. You can't. Even though people say, yeah, we take part-timers, we we welcome women and all that. The reality is that you wouldn't want to go home. You'd want to be there anyway. Yeah. So instead, I saw a job advertised to run the training team for the murder team. So do all their training. So they're sort of serious and complex, like CCTV, you know, forensic, all that sort of stuff. But put it together. And they the back in the day, the training unit for the murder teams had their own training team and they had their own courses for like murder um detectives yeah so you would join the murder squad and you'd go on a course and so anyway and because i'd been on barra recently i'd been on the murder team previously i suppose i got in, interviewed and boarded and uh i got the job uh which again i was really sort of thankful for because it meant that i could work days yeah but the idea in my head was i'll go in as the training supervisor manager type thing and then hopefully as my kids get older, they'll all know me again and I'll be able to get back in, you know, and do that job. Yep. So it's getting that foot in the door again. And so I did that for a while, but it was coming to a, a period where all mandatory training and all training was being reviewed across the Met. And they only wanted training, mandatory training to be run by sort of like Met Training Hendon. Yeah. And so they weren't going to have specialist training for the, for the murder teams outside of the core mandatory training. So I knew that that was going to probably come to an end. And I and I couldn't at that point, I still wouldn't be able to give the murder team my time, you know, and I knew that you would need to do that. Even though people kept saying it's fine, we have people working part time, blah, blah, blah. You can work on homes or something else. Even if you're on homes, even if you're an indexer, you've got to be there. And I knew the reality of it. And then it would just, I think it would cause me more stress in my life, you know, trying to balance everything. So I decided, so a job came up at Hendon at the Crime Academy running the detective sergeants course, so part, part of the senior faculty right. and in, interview training and stuff like that and running their course, Serious and Complex Crime. And I thought I'm going to apply for that because that, again, would give me the chance to still work days and not work shifts. But also I, I'm, I'm still in with it. I can still impart my knowledge. So that's what I did. I applied for that job and I got that job. And, you know, at that point, at that time, it was a really tough gig because they only wanted people to run that course that knew what, you know, 
knew what it entailed, as in to do house to house, to do CCTV, to do certain things. So you had to be kind of qualified in areas and prove that you could do that. So it's not just a case of right going to training school and you get a job as a trainer because it was a really specialist course. Yeah. You know, specialised. So I was really pleased that I got that job because I thought, yeah, they obviously think a lot of what I've done, maybe, <laughs> she says. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and that was it. So speeding forward, then I took my promotion exams while I was there because I was able to do that. But in between, <clears throat> I suppose I missed out that I also had the opportunity to go to university to, to do a teaching qualification. As part of the and, job? Yeah, as part of the job. Wow. Because you have to be qualified to be able to teach, to be able to teach these courses. Some new would legislate or something had come in. I'd, I'd, I'd had the train, train the trainers course, you know, the one that they do, the basic course that they do at Hendon and stuff to train people. But now it was, I don't know whether something changed in the way that they were um, kind, of, uh, kind of running it and they and they had some courses and they said, right, do you want to go on this? Or I put in for it. And it was a two year sort of either PGCE or a cert ed. So depending if you'd been to university before or not. And um, so, yeah, I was going to take it. Um, and again, everything is really hard because my neighbor helped me with my daughter looking after my daughter so I could go to university in the evening. Again, it's that thing where it's constant. You know, it's really hard balancing family, the job, uh, home, you know, and trying to further yourself but and you're, trying to study. But your single-mindedness has overcome all these barriers. You've actually got on with what you wanted to do and balanced the the family life as well. And I understand. I mean, I, I was a an absent father for many a time, you know, we'd have a murder or something, you know, something to come in, I'd be working late, undercover stuff or whatever it may be. But it's different for a guy because you haven't got those, I haven't got the maternal instincts. And I had my wife who I could say, I'm really sorry, Joe, but I'm going to be, uh, I'm tied up. I'm not going to be home tonight or tomorrow or, or, or whenever. You can't do that as a, as a working mum. No, I know. And people think that, oh, yeah, it's shared. But I think naturally... The, the 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 mother or the woman or whatever not in all cases but in our case I suppose it was just you know um I suppose I still took the lead or I still had the majority of the responsibility of you know the amount of school emails you get now the amount of letters mm. the amount of this and you know <laughs> paying for lunches paying for this I at one point I had two childminders and a nursery um, just to pick up, drop off, have all day while I was working, you know, and, and I wanted to stay at work. This is the thing. I never, me personally, I didn't want to be an, an at-home mum looking after my kids. It just, I, I'd built a career. I'd started young. I knew that in my way in my 30-year contract, I suppose, I, I was contracted. I knew that any, you know, gaps would affect my outcome yeah. of my contract. And I suppose I was kind of, um, I had that foresight that I just needed to stay up, 
stay working, you know, and and that the benefits would be that I would be able to retire early, you know, yeah. when I'm still young enough to do sort of other things and be around. So that's what I did. And yeah, I overcame obstacles as they went along. But every day or most days, you have to be super, super organized. I mean, I just ran a tight ship, as my kids would tell you back then. I had to. There was no, it was, you know, they were up at like quarter to seven, half six, quarter to seven, drop off at seven at the childminder. And then I'd be racing to work to get in on time. And it'd just be things like the snow. You know, I was running a team and I dropped off my baby then and then dropped off my door and then I got into work and then there'd be people like I'm snowed in or they're late. And I'm like, I've just dropped off two kids. Get in. You know, <laughs> what do you? And I suppose back then it was just really, really frustrating because I thought if I could do it, this is the thing that I've had to adapt as well, is that I set myself such high standards. And what I what I consider people have told me, like, it's probably feedback that I'm saying it like this. But I think. I've had to change that way just because I've done it, just because I made it in doesn't mean everyone is going to is going to do the same. And I think at that time I was expecting that because I did and the sacrifices I've made because I knew that you someone had to be in and you had to and I yep. had to as the team leader. I couldn't not be. And if I've managed to do it, whether it's been heels or what, and I've managed to still make it in. Then yeah. it was just a little bit frustrating when people couldn't, you know, no. or didn't want to. Yeah, no, they, they've used it as an excuse not to be in. Yeah, and and that, yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. Although I've got to say that some people have different levels of snow. Is because I actually had this with somebody that couldn't couldn't get in from. Well, they were living in in Surrey, Aldershot, Hampshire, and they were coming to Harlow. And they couldn't get in because of the snow, and and they did this a number of times. And in the end, um, I got a bit fed up with it, and I asked the, the traffic guys in all the counties just to have a look at the roads, and the roads were clear. And guess what? They went and knocked his doors, said, "Get yourself in." Well, that's one part, yeah. Uh, but then I had somebody who lived in Saffron Walden, which is just down the road from from Harlow, and the roads weren't clear. So what happens next? In um, you get promoted at some point yeah. to, to inspector. So- so I do my teaching thing and then I do my exams and then I get promoted again. I didn't get promoted first time. Um, you know, I I felt like everything I've had to do in my life, I've had to really work at. But it's made me the person I am. And I suppose even from being a DS and then when I got promoted as, as a DI, I think I, I really, because of those uh, times where I didn't get it first time, it has made me the person I am because I really wanted to learn why and where I'd gone wrong and what happened and how. And I and I suppose now that's what it led me to when I got retired is that I decided to do the promotion stuff and set up my business because I really understood then where I'd gone wrong and what and how I could help other people. And I just found that people were really secretive and didn't want to share their knowledge around it because they had to pay for a course or they had to go on. So why don't you? There was no, but as a as a manager, when I when I was a DI, I still used to run. So 
while I was in the job for years, I, for a good few years, I used to run classes. I used to put on um, kind of, you, you know, actual sessions. I used to organize mock boards for people. Um, so practice. So on top of my core role, even if it was in the evening or weekends, I would make sure and I'd have people not just from where I was. So even so I went to actually projects for a while, even on project. It wasn't just from my immediate. It was from all over. So people had heard and, and across the Met. And it was a lot of specialist people as well, because I think they thought that I was quite niche in the way that I've been kind of in specialist areas. So I'd be able to help them because they're from counterterrorism or they're from murder teams or intel or projects. And actually, they they had real sort of challenges trying to sell their their stories and their and their. you know, work that they had done when actually, you, you know, the the sort of best actual evidence comes from a lot of these areas because there's so much is is the breadth and depth as well. Yeah, you know that, that you talk about, and um, so I was doing it. So I just, I suppose, because I'd learnt myself so much, and I did have some help along the way as well from some really good people. And I picked someone, I had a a detective chief inspector, a female. And I remember when I was going for it and I'd asked, um, I picked the most critical person. She was really critical and, but really harsh. She came across really hard. And I thought, you you know, if I'm gonna have, have have a mock board, I wanna have it with the person that I know is the toughest to kind of get through. Uh, so I so I asked her if she would do my mock board and all this. And I learned so much from that mock board. And I had like two mock boards, you know, two or three. And um, but the feedback from certain people that had helped me along the way was so invaluable. And I learned so much from that. that and it was so uh, genuine, you know, real, like the yeah. feedback. I don't want people to just say yeah it's okay or no da, da, da. I, I want it to be really candid feedback yep. you know um so yeah so I'd learned so much so I just thought you know what I I'm I'm enjoying seeing people pass when they haven't been able to and they've had challenges and then I got involved with the Sikh police police association I think I helped a few people that that were part of that group and then they were sending people to me. Brilliant. And also because English being a second language to myself and understanding how people think and, you know, the sort of challenges. And I supported that group. And again, I got an award from them because they felt really supported as a, as a community or as a police family. Um, and it kind of went on from there. And then so, when yeah, I was... So when, um, when I was deciding and to be honest with you it was a really hard decision to make because I because I joined in April in 1991 and I couldn't decide even in April if I was going to retire or not and I actually retired in July in the end um and the only way I could sort of come to terms with the fact that I needed to to retire was by telling myself that I have to go everyone has to leave at some point that's the only way that I could that I would leave, really. Um, 
And I had to tell myself, right, well, I'm going to have to go eventually. What's the point? I was weighing up like pension, money. I don't want to just do it for the money. I want to go when I'm ready to go, you know, all this sort of thing. And so I thought, well, okay. So, so I decided, but in my mind, I thought I'm going to set up some sort of mentoring, coaching, training business, promotion, police promotion training, because still now in the job I just feel that there's a lack of that and I knew some companies that actually offer it and some of them are probably very good and there's some that aren't so good and I just think people are paying for this Mm. and I actually put the meat on the on the bones I actually can mentor them through it like tell them exactly because I've been on both ends I've sat on boards and I've you know been an actual marker on board so I kind of get what it's about and um, some people need to be kind of spoon fed through it. You know, I do a lot of coaching sessions where I split my time and I take them through it step by step and talk them through it. And then they realize, you know, what is actually needed, what the tool, they don't have the tools. So, yeah, so that's what I did. So I set up Sandra Maisie Training and Promotion Hub when I retired in July 2021. The links, and, the links are all going to be on on your your bio as well. So th- th- oh, everything okay. will be out there. That's great. Um, so, like I say, I do coaching, mentoring workshops. You know, I'm slowly building. It's word of mouth. Um, my, I suppose, USP or my unique selling point compared to other companies that that uh, do this is um, that I do a lot of one-to-one. So although I offer courses and other companies do, where you have 12 people on on a course, it seems like people contact me because they actually want a one-to-one. And a lot of places won't do one-to-ones because I suppose it's one person one day, whereas they can have 12 people and do one day whereas for me it's not just about the money yes it is a business and all that but it's more than that it's kind of passion I actually feel like I'm still part of the um policing family you know and I want to help and I genuinely want to help people succeed yeah I I get it um, you know so that's why I do it and it's not because I miss money is lovely, you know, you need money, but I know what it's like not to have any and to then have money, I suppose. And it's not the it's not the be all and end all for me. That that isn't my motivator, just my motivator. So, um, yeah, so I do that. And um, so I run that according to the timeline. So I've had people contact me from Wales. I've done a application review i've had city of london on the application and board um and the met so really if if it's competency value framework then i'm very good at interpreting what that means and i can do it for any force really yeah. it's just a matter of you know guiding people through that uh but predominantly because i'm known within the met i suppose it's word of mouth from people that have been to me or used me to kind of spread the word really and what what do i do more than other other people is that i've been there i've done it i've been unsuccessful and i've been successful and i suppose from learning from that it's helped me really understand what they want so um that 
and then I, I got contacted by a consultancy company um when was that last year to whether I'd come back on a contract and do some work for the Met uh, as a training specialist um they just needed someone for like five months to um help out on this project I thought about it and I thought yeah why not because I follow a timeline so when I've got gaps in my work it could be that there's three or four months that I don't actually have work because I follow the promotion timeline so I took that contract out that was really good so I worked <clears throat> last year for five months on the new learning management system for the Met um so yeah so i still feel like i'm part of yeah, that good. family i haven't completely gone away and, and and to be honest with you and that's why i do this because i i still want i want people to know that there are people like you and i out, out here to to support serving and former officers and give them everything that they need for their i hate using it but for their toolbox because if they haven't got the right tools they're never going to succeed and there are some really talented people within the police service who need your help because unless they get that additional support, they're not going to pass their promotion board. I've got friends who have gone through board after board after board and they're obviously saying the same thing and they need to switch it up and they need to reinvent themselves, rebrand themselves from a business perspective yeah. and that's what they need and they need a Sandra Mosley in their life because if they do, if but they do because no I know I I get frustrated when I see instant experts on LinkedIn okay so you've had somebody that has served for 12 years and all of a sudden they become an expert in promotion an expert in police recruitment an expert in um helping people set up their own businesses after the police well it was like me going to a domestic violence or domestic when I joined the police in 1987 and never, ever having a serious relationship. How could I tell somebody else how to live their lives when I'd never actually done it myself? So you and I, we are in the best position to help and support those people that need it in our key areas. And, and, and that frustrates the life out of me. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think, as you said, that people try time and time again. I've had people that have are on their last leg, you know, that they've tried three times and they come to me and they've been on other courses. I always ask them, have you been on a course? Have you done anything? And basically they come to me and they go and they're exasperated. I'm never going to do it and all this. And I just say, right, let's start from scratch and we change it up completely because it's that old saying it is true if you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always got you know and it is true so you've got to change the way that you're learning the way that you're actually studying etc so um I do that so I understand that I understand the sort of challenges around that and I think that's what makes me a little bit different from some of these companies um, I'm very personable and it's me, you know, and whereas some of them have got a lot of people, a lot of different people that work for them. Some of them have never been a police officer and they advertise services. Um, so, 
so they can't put the meat on the bones. That's my point. They can't put the meat on the bones. They can't actually tell you tactically what you should be doing. What is the breadth? What is the depth of what you're going into and how you should be selling this? Because they don't have that police knowledge and police experience and police talk. So, you know, so hopefully my thing would be or my saying would be to them is don't give up. You just need to try a different way. Yeah, and I'm absolutely. the way. <laughs> yeah, you are. You are the way. You are the way. They, they, um, I am your answer. <laughs> yeah, but you're very candid. You know, it's 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 refreshing. If I'm perfectly honest with you, what um what does it look like now though? In away from the policing element, you know, you've got a number of hobbies. You've you've you're doing all your different things. A member of the WI, Jerusalem and Jam. I mean, who who just thought? I joined it. And um, I think when I left, when I when I retired, although I set up my business, obviously I follow a timeline, so I have gaps and all that. I just thought, how am I going to fill my time? What am I going to do? Is I think everyone goes through this because I read it on Facebook. You know, I'm on a lot of the police retired serving Facebook pages and I read people's stories all the time. I don't put anything on there. I just like to have a look and see how people are feeling, what the mood is, you know, and all this. And I just thought, well, how am I going to fill my time? So I contact, I thought, oh, I've never, to be honest with you, I've never outside of the job, my kids, my family, that includes my mom, you, you know, my extended family, I had very few friends. I've I've left with a handful of friends, if that. And um, and I never had time to. I mean, I sometimes I would pick up my kids from school. Other times it would be childminders. I remember turning up and one of the mums going, "Who, who are you?" And that really it did upset me inside. But they were just being funny. They knew who who I was, but yeah. because obviously they hadn't sort of seen me there, that that much it was like that film bad mums you know there's a <laughs> film out years ago called bad mums where i remember the clip where the mum is driving to the school she's got a coffee in her hand they're saying that there's this urgent meeting she's driving and as she gets she breaks or something and the coffee spills down her and then she gets into the hall where this urgent meeting's meant to be and it's all about baking bread or cakes and the woman goes, you've got me here for that. And I actually can see myself like doing that, thinking, you know, I've come here for this. It's like, uh, it's just so a lot of people, a lot of public, a lot of people I've come in as quite small minded how, yeah, you know, they are. And I, and I just think that when I left, I think, right, how am I going to fill this void? You know, this gap of, you know, I don't really, I only have a handful of friends, like I say, and I just thought I joined the WI, but I'm one of, I'm the youngest person <laughs> in my village WI. The probably average age is probably late 70s, 80s. Um, but I find it really endearing and I quite like talking to the older women. It's only once a month that they meet up and they've had some lunches and stuff that I've been able to go to. But I quite like it because my mum's not with me anymore. And my mum passed away quite a few years ago and my father did too. And I suppose for me, it's almost like I like to listen to stories. Yeah. I like to hear. And, they, and they're so, do you, do you know what? I turned up, they're so well-groomed. 
it is exactly as you think, as you expect. You know, they Brilliant. come to the do's and they're all like dressed up and it's just lovely. Oh, but that's it's fantastic. Like, and this is, you know, what we're doing now, it's about social history. And I hope that the, the ladies from the, the WI listen to this because they don't know 99% of, of your story. Um, and when they start talking about this, you'll be able to put more meat on those bones because we could talk for days. I just know that because <laughs> because that's our psyche. But but the fact is that you you engage in you you do all your other stuff. You know you do your Pilates, your boxing, your cycling, your cooking, your keeping up your Italian. All the things I'm reading from your CV, effectively your CV. I know. It's but it's brilliant, and and you, it makes you wonder how you've got the time to do these things. Well, I was running at 100. When the pandemic hit, I was 100 miles an hour. I'm not going to lie. It really hit me hard. Yeah. Suddenly, I was stuck at home. <laughs> I was not commuting. I was used to getting up at quarter past five, doing everything. Yeah. Getting ready. I'd do a day's work before I even get into. So this is what I was going to say. So I went as a DI, and I worked in South London. I'd never worked South River, and I was suddenly at Vauxhall Intelligence, and then at Lambeth. And I was commuting every day. So I was leaving early. It was an hour and a half at least each way. Mm. And um, and so when the pandemic hit, and obviously my role, I could work from home, as everyone did. At first, I sort of volunteered to go in because I thought, I don't want to be stuck at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to being out and being with people. How could this happen? And, um, and I had to re-kind of calibrate and um and like calm down you know um so going back to your question i suppose i've always had things i don't know i've never i don't know what it's like i didn't know what it was like to just be calmed down and actually do something i'll be honest to to do so i took up clay club pottery and art because even during the pandemic i wasn't using my creative side i'm so used to just doing whatever I have to do, you know, my uh, like police work reports, managing staff, everything. I didn't really have time for actually hobbies. And suddenly I'm faced with more time because of the role that I, I was in. And what do I do? What is my hobbies? I don't know. I don't know what my hobbies are, you know, because I've never had time to have hobbies. And so my um sister-in-law I'm gonna thank her for this is very arty she runs a children's nursery and she got me into rock art you know yeah, painting yeah. on stones and I thought I don't even know how to paint stones <laughs> <laughs> and um so she got me into it and it really helped it really helped with me as they, I've, I've read this word on Facebook, decompress. <laughs> yeah. It helped me kind of decompress and just, I suppose, just to relax into it, to a slower pace of life. And I think all of that prepared me for retirement because if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure I could have just gone, you know, and that I would have needed to change the way I was doing things, slowing down a little bit yeah. with it all. And my kids were getting older, so they don't – well, they still need you, but, you know, there's a different need. Yeah. And 
So afterwards, I decided, I suppose, going to Clay Club, I call it Clay Club Pottery. I mean, even there, I struggled. I joined only last year in October time. And I got there and after a few extra sessions, I just said to the woman, do you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I'm I, not creative. I don't know like what, you know, and she goes, well, there's loads of books here. There's loads of this. I thought, books? I don't want to be reading books. I've come here for you to teach me how to, <laughs> how to make a cup or something. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, my so, life. That's superb. How how are the Met going to get more Sandras into the organisation? I mean, we we've seen the um, the fallout of some of the idiots that have let us down, and they have let us down. Whatever way, you know, for the for the thirty odd thousand fantastic people, you'll have a handful that have really let us down. How are they going to get more Sandras into the Met? Um, right. Well, before I I retired I contacted HR and I said what are you doing around retention of women and experience because like like I said to you before I couldn't really decide if I wanted to retire but I thought actually if there's a scheme or something then you know it might help and they and I think eventually they emailed back and said nothing you know sort sort of thing it wasn't on the agenda and it was a little bit frustrating because I then retired and then about nine months later they bought out a retirement scheme that if you had retired in the last few years or up to five years you could go back you know and keep your pension and get your salary yeah but the difference was it was that you could stay in post so if you so if that had happened when I was retiring I could have stayed in my post whereas if you apply now you've got to go I suppose the need is frontline policing and having gone through so going back to your question I suppose that was a little bit frustrating and lack of foresight really on behalf of them I suppose but now they've tried to correct that by bringing people back in But going back to many years ago, when I was a DS on Borough, they had something called rotation. And what they would do is that if you were on a specialist team, so murder teams, kidnap squad, you know, flying squad, wherever, after a certain period of time to put experience back on frontline policing, they would do a rotation. Now, people hated it. But that said, I think it was the best thing ever because I worked with people that came back on Borough that had been on those squads and they knew exactly what to do with any risk type scenarios so going back to what we we were talking about scaling it yeah they were they were used to kidnaps they were used to this but they knew how to deal with serious crime they knew how to deal with like we'd all been through that and more so my answer would be that you need to do something like that again because that's where the experience is. You're not going to get people back from those units otherwise. Unless you make it a thing, you ain't going to because people are happy doing their niche role, but there's a lack of experience. Yeah, and it leaves the boroughs really short. And we look at the, the public criticism around the quality of investigations and, and what have you. They need to get that experience out of the smaller teams or out of the teams and share the love because those pe- mm. people that are on boroughs need to have the opportunity to go and learn. And with that rotation that you're talking about, that knowledge will then go through the, and they'll have better retention. 
Because if all you can ever see is a blue light and a look, I, I believe in in the sanctity of the police service, and I believe that we need to have good frontline cops. And and I've said this dozens of times before. Every crime starts in the community. So if you can get you wherever that community may be, but you need to have your communicators, you need to have your intelligence gatherers, you need to have a complete team. But to put reliance on inexperienced people isn't going to work. But the reason why there's that lack of experience as well is because people aren't really happy and they're moving on as soon as they can. So because they're not getting the learning, they're not getting the support, they're not getting. So there's a few things. So one is the experience and the rotation, I think, could help. But the other thing is the training. Like I'm not going to say that the new way of them training I've left after over, over 30 years and I didn't get I didn't get a degree from all the experience that I've got. I've got PIP level two and I've got PIP level two managers and I've got CMI, you know, and all these sort of things. And I went to university later on. But it is nice to have been awarded with something at the end of your 30 years. However, that said, you 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 only get it now if you join the job and you do one one of the pathways. The problem still with all of this and it being outsourced to a university and all that sort of stuff is that team kind of spirit still. I think that's eroded a little bit. You used to know who your people were. Like they would know after a couple of weeks of being at Hendon, you'd know what you were like because people can only be different for a short period of time. I've taught in classrooms and my course was a three-week course. And at the end of week one, you knew what that person was like in the workplace as well as in the classroom, you know? So I think that's kind of made a big difference. And I wonder whether they could have done something. My understanding is that the reason why it's gone to the universities is because in order to, to do a degree, and to get a degree qualification needs to be held in a university setting. Uh, but obviously there's a lot more probably to it. But I think the training and the people that are doing the training needs to be looked at as well. But they are reviewing that. I think it's only the Metropolitan Police that aren't going down that route. I think the other forces are going away from the academia. I think they're going to have options. Um, but you're quite right. I think when I left, I'd written strategic papers. I'd written uh, academic pieces. I literally had, you know, we, we've, we've written books, you and I, over our time. We would have written books on academia, which should have given me, I know you've got got a degree, but you should have got, I should have got credits so that I could have gone forward and left with a suitable qualification. But I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I it, And it, it's something that... No, not me. Yeah, you could if you could if you had that as your end goal, then that would be even more reason to to see it out if if that makes sense. Because if you think you're walking away with a an accolade, a degree, then you think, oh yeah, well I'll stay for those extra years because I'll I'll aspire to it. But the fact is, there is there is no carrot at the end of this or pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, so that's the incentive now, but. Everything has to give and there's got to be compromise. And I think the give on that is the fact that it's not residential course. You don't know your class and your team necessarily. It's a blended learning style. So there's, you know, there's pros and cons to the whole thing. Yeah, but, absolutely. 
you know, it's probably another another, another session. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been counselled here, to be fair, but it's... <laughs> but... <laughs> That's what you get from me. You get support, the mentoring, the coaching and the counselling. <laughs> no. well, it's, it, it's brilliant. Sandra, before I conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct? No, I think I think it's been great. I was a little bit apprehensive not knowing how it was all going to be or go, but thank you. No, it's been great. It's been lovely speaking to you. Have a great Sunday. I'm sorry that I've taken so much of your time and uh, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Take See care. You be good. Bye. Bye-bye.